0: Quick note before we get underway. This episode includes a brief mention of a sexual activity. It's not graphic or anything, but if you are in a listening situation where you need to accommodate that, we wanted to let you know. All right, let's get started.
1: This episode of Annotated is sponsored by You Don't Have to Say You Love Me, a memoir from Sherman Alexie, the critically acclaimed, best-selling, National Book Award-winning author of The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian. Family relationships are never simple. But Sherman Alexie's bond with his mother Lillian was more complex than most. She plunged her family into chaos with a drinking habit, but shed her addiction when it was on the brink of costing her everything. She survived a violent past, but created an elaborate facade to hide the truth. When she passed away, the incongruities that defined his mother shook Sherman. In the wake of this loss, he responded the only way he knew how. He wrote, The result is a stunning memoir filled with raw, Angry, funny, profane, and tender memories of a childhood few can imagine, much less survive. You Don't Have to Say You Love Me is out now in print, digital, and audio.
0: It's summer, 1933. A man stands on the New York City docks waiting to pass through customs. He doesn't look suspicious. He's well-dressed and seems professional. But he has a secret. In his bag is contraband from Paris.
2: His name is Bennett Surf, And when he gets to the front of the line, there's a nerve-wracking moment at customs. Will he be pulled out of line? Will his bag be searched? But then the agent just waves him through, unchecked. Here's the thing, though. Surf doesn't breathe a sigh of relief. Instead, he demands they search his bag. They refuse, and he demands again.
0: Finally, an annoyed agent searches his bag and hits pay dirt. In Surf's possession is an illegal copy of James Joyce's Ulysses, the modernist novel banned in America for its lewd and obscene content. Selling just one copy was enough to put someone in jail. The
2: official takes a long look at Surf and then simply smiles. It's okay, he whispers. Everyone brings that in. But Surf refuses to leave. This bizarre, backwards argument escalates. They even call over a supervisor, with Cerf insisting he's broken the law and demanding his book be seized.
0: In the end, the customs agent played right into Cerf's hands, confiscating his illicit copy of Ulysses. And this one small action on a Manhattan pier set off a chain of events that would lead to the most important literary trial of the 20th century.
2: Also, it helped make a name for Bennett Cerf's little-known new company, a small publishing concern called Random House.
0: Hello and welcome to Annotated. I'm Jeff O'Neill.
2: And I'm Rebecca Shinsky. Today, we explore the unlikely cast of characters who stuck their necks out for James Joyce's dirty little novel, Ulysses, as it rose from underground curiosity to perhaps the greatest novel ever written in the English language.
1: This podcast and the following message are brought to you by The Lost Woman by Sarah Bladle. A housewife is the target of a shocking, methodical killing. Shot with a hunting rifle through her kitchen window, the woman is dead before she hits the ground. Though murdered in England, it turns out that the woman, Sophie Parker, is actually a Danish citizen who's been on the missing persons list for almost two decades. So Louise Rick is called on to the case. It is soon discovered that Sophie had been reported missing 18 years ago by none other than Ayak, Louise Rick's police colleague and lover. Sarah Bladle is the author of the number one international best-selling series featuring Detective Louise Rick. Her books are published in 37 countries, and in 2014, Sarah was voted Denmark's most popular novelist for the fourth time. Our thanks to The Lost Woman by Sarah Bladle for making Annotated possible.
3: In the nineteen teens, the First Amendment was considered, um, the protections that it gave were very, very narrow.
0: This is Kevin Birmingham, author of the most dangerous book, The Battle for James Joyce's Ulysses.
3: The notion that the First Amendment could protect a work of art in the 19-teens was absurd. No one had ever thought of that as as a possibility. Ulysses was
2: a scandalous experiment. It was shamelessly provocative, and in it, Joyce channeled a wildly intimate stream-of-consciousness style to convey the messy truth of the human experience.
0: Make no mistake, it is graphic. But Joyce was trying to capture the unfiltered view of the world that we all have in our minds. And some of what goes on in our minds is not completely wholesome. Here's novelist Maya Lang.
4: You know, when it first came out, people wanted to burn all of the existing copies, and it was considered just absolute filth. Now, especially young readers, I think, won't find it shocking. But I think the reason we no longer find it so shocking is because of it. We owe it to Ulysses. The fact that we no longer find such things shocking.
2: But America's obscenity laws in the early 20th century were nothing to be trifled with. There were words you just didn't use. And Joyce used every single one.
3: These are things that you could not see in print at all. It was so far out of bounds that no one had even attempted to do that before. If you were to use a four-letter word like that, it meant that you were writing pornography.
2: Of course, one man's pornography is another man's literature, or in this case, two radical feminists, Margaret Anderson and Jane Heap.
0: Anderson and Heap ran a small New York literary magazine called The Little Review. They were Joyce's early champions, and he would send handwritten pages from Paris to their tiny Greenwich Village office, ten or so at a time, as he was writing them. They loved what Joyce was doing. They thought art should explode the status quo and that nothing should be off-limits.
2: Beginning in 1918, Anderson and Heap mailed magazines with excerpts of Joyce to their 3,000 subscribers. And while this led to a groundswell of interest in Ulysses, it also led to trouble.
0: Now, at this point in history, the ultimate authority for American censorship was the post office. Under the Comstock Law of 1873, they had full authority to check the mail. And if they thought something was obscene, they could ban it. And if they wanted to, send you to jail for up to 10 years.
2: In 1921, someone tipped off the post office and the Little Review was shut down. Its editors were arrested and they ended up on trial on obscenity charges. Ultimately, they lost the case.
3: Ulysses was banned in New York before Joyce was even finished writing it. Uh, once that guilty verdict was rendered against the Little Review, no one wanted to have anything to do with it. Publishers who were thinking of publishing Ulysses in the United States just said, forget it. Unless Joyce is willing to cut these passages, we're not going to publish it. And, of course, he refused to do it.
2: So Joyce is living in Paris and he completes the novel, but he still can't find anyone to publish it. He can't even find someone to physically print the pages. Remember, printers, booksellers, everyone is potentially liable. And then he meets Sylvia Beach,
0: Sylvia Beach was an expat from New Jersey who was passionate about innovative writers. This was the time of the lost generation in Paris, when the franc was cheap and writers like Hemingway, Fitzgerald, Ezra Pound, Gertrude Stein, and many others started flocking to the left bank.
2: It's around this time that Beach sends one of the most enviable telegrams in history to her parents. Opening bookstore in Paris, stop. Send money, stop. And that becomes Shakespeare and Company, the literary hangout of the day.
0: So Beach reads Ulysses, and she loves it. She says, I have to get involved. I want to publish this beautiful, important, filthy book. And that's what's so interesting about Ulysses, the effect it has on readers. They think it's either obscene and a perversion, or they think it's the great novel they've been waiting for, or both.
2: Novelist Maya Lang, who we met earlier, was so drawn in by the push and pull of Ulysses, she wrote The 16th of June, a modern riff set on the same day of the year as the classic.
4: He didn't just want to create a masterpiece. He wanted to really create a challenge and to essentially kind of create the Everest of literature. And you feel that from page one. You know, you don't feel him trying to draw you in. You feel a challenge. You feel uh, obstacles. And Molly Bloom.
0: Molly Bloom is the heroine of Ulysses
4: she's not like an obedient, cooperative housewife. I mean, she speaks her mind. She's frank. She's shrill. She's demanding. She's a wonderfully complex character. And I think that character in 1922, written by Joyce, is, uh, you know, kind of a revelation
0: to this day, many readers feel a strong connection to Ulysses. In fact, throngs of Joyce fans celebrate Bloomsday every year on the holy day of June 16th, the exact date Joyce said his novel. They dress up like Joyce, and they drink like Joyce. But why did Joyce initially choose June 16th?
4: The reason Joyce chose that day is because that was his sort of first date with his wife, Nora Barnacle. What people don't know is that that date ended with Nora performing, I guess, an exceptional hand job. You know, a lot of people are really intimidated by Ulysses. They think Bloomsday is this incredibly pretentious event, which it can be. But ultimately, we're toasting a hand job on that day.
0: So it's the early 20s. Joyce's novel is evoking all sorts of reactions, as great art should. And soon it becomes this symbol of the constraint on art by society. If Joyce can't publish Ulysses, people say, what's the point of creating art at all?
2: Sylvia Beach steps up and publishes the novel, but it's not easy. She's forced to do it underground in small batches, and it's expensive. Each copy costs $12 to buy, which is about $150 today. Plus, Beach can only publish 10 or 12 at a time. She can't keep them in stock
0: it becomes the cause celeb of anyone who cares about literature. T.S. Eliot gets involved, Virginia Woolf, D.H. Lawrence. This guy shows up in 1922. He doesn't know anybody. And the first thing he does is go to Shakespeare and Company and ask to meet James Joyce because his contraband copy of Ulysses has the name of the bookstore on it. The guy is Ernest Hemingway.
3: To read Ulysses or even to have Ulysses on your shelf was a signifier. It meant that you supported free expression, it meant that you supported advanced progressive ideas, and that you were opposed to the more uh, stringent and uh, restrictive uh, culture of the uh, Victorian or Edwardian era in, in the UK, and to some degree in the United States.
2: But Beach still had a problem. She was almost out of money, so she takes a moonshot and risks it all. She's got to get Ulysses to America.
0: She tries all sorts of semi-legal ways, selling single copies, quote-unquote, privately to booksellers, making it part of a subscription. One day she asks Ezra Pound, how do I get 200 copies of this thing to America at a time? Hemingway, who's sitting in the corner, pipes up and says, I know a guy.
2: (laughs) Of course he knows a guy. He's Hemingway.
0: Hemingway's pal is a Canadian rum runner because this is prohibition after all and there's a whole pipeline of smuggling coming through Detroit. The guy worked in the US every day so he'd bring two copies on his way to work across the border smuggled in his pants.
2: There's also an incredible story about this lawyer, a leading art collector of the day who needed to get 15 copies to America. He figures, what if I ship them to America stuffed between these French paintings I bought? No one will look. The paintings he uses are these pieces by a little known guy named Paul Cezanne. So in the end, a bunch of Cezanne's worth more than $70 million today became packing peanuts to smuggle in copies of Ulysses. It goes on like this for 10 years.
0: For a decade, if you wanted a copy of Ulysses, you either needed to smuggle it in yourself or buy a contraband copy. That all changes in 1932, when Bennett Cerf, the enterprising young publisher we met earlier on the New York Docs, mentions the Ulysses problem to an established lawyer named Morris Ernst.
3: Morris Ernst was one of the co-founders of the ACLU, and uh, he took an abiding interest in fighting back against obscenity.
2: Ernst had recently defended a grandmother against obscenity charges for sending a sex ed pamphlet through the mail. He won the appeal with a precedent-setting claim arguing that if something is true or useful, then obscenity is not sufficient grounds for banning it.
3: His thinking was that if we can get a book like Ulysses legalized based upon its artistic merit, then we would uh, roll back the ability of the federal government to prosecute books, which was uh, one of his core concerns.
0: Cerf says to Ernst, let's take the U.S. government to court. And he makes him an offer. He tells Ernst that he doesn't have the money right away to pay him. So if they lose the case, Ernst will get nothing. But Cerf says that if he can get the American rights from Joyce and they indeed win the case, Ernst will get 2% royalties forever. Ernst takes the deal.
3: I don't think Bennett Cerf was a, a, a great lover of James Joyce in particular. I think that he was a savvy businessman. And I think that he recognized early on that a case that would legalize a monumental book would be a huge coup for his young publishing house, which was Random House.
2: Surf gets the rights from Joyce, and now he and Ernst need to, you know, break the law. And they need to find a way to do it creatively.
0: They couldn't just ship Ulysses in the mail because they could find themselves in jail just like Anderson and Heap, Joyce's first American publishers. So, they found a new way in. They challenged the Tariff Act and have the book seized at the border, which, as we know, was harder than it looked. But at least this way, they could challenge the ban on Ulysses in court without facing prison if they lost.
2: They succeed in getting the book seized, and it leads to one of the most significant court cases in the history of literature. The case wasn't technically against Cerf. Instead, it was against the smuggled book itself. The case was officially called The People of the United States versus One Book Called Ulysses.
0: The trial is fascinating. The judge, John Woolsey, was an educated intellectual man, who in the past had been sympathetic to the truth and utility argument in obscenity cases.
2: Plus, Ernst had a few tricks up his sleeve. For one, he knew that the opposing lawyer was quite puritanical, and if there were a woman present, wouldn't bring himself to read aloud the most damning, vulgar passages. So Ernst had his wife Sophie sit in court the whole trial.
0: Ernst also knew there was an odd quirk in cases like this. You weren't allowed to bring in expert witnesses. This meant you could only judge the book based on what's between the covers. So Serf and Ernst had preemptively pasted into the seized book all these glowing reviews and printed praise from Virginia Woolf and others, saying that it was a work of genius and possibly the greatest book in the English language. Because if these quotes are physically in the book when it's confiscated, they're admissible.
2: The government was hanging their case on one clear-cut point. Since the book was filled with four-letter words, then by definition it must be obscene.
3: And the arguments were effectively that we need to protect young people against the harm that words have on you. The phrase at the time that was operative for censorship was words' ability to to deprave and corrupt. But
2: Ernst angles to make the trial not about obscenity, but about literary merit, specifically that if a work of literature is true or represents something true, then it is not merely obscene. In other cases, especially about sexual health, Woolsey ruled that even graphic descriptions were allowed if there were some other value beyond their mere obscenity. So Ernst tries to get Judge Woolsey to see the case as a critical discussion of Ulysses and what art means.
0: The central artistic achievement of the book is what we all know as stream of consciousness. Through words, Joyce was trying to represent what it's like to be a person who is having an experience, who is having a conversation, but is also thinking about dinner, who is also thinking about sex, is also worried about her mom.
2: The passage that's really being challenged is a scene in which Molly Bloom is on a beach daydreaming about what it would be like to have sex with that guy over there. Some of it's pretty lewd, but it's all this sort of daydream.
0: And so Wolsey is asking, what is this all about? And Ernst makes this brilliant move, echoing Joyce's style. He says, and this is literally from the transcript, Your Honor, while arguing to win this case, I thought I was only intent on this book. But frankly, while pleading before you, I've also been thinking about that ring around your tie, how your gown does not fit too well on your shoulders, and that picture of John Marshall behind your bench.
2: This is the moment of truth. Judge Woolsey wraps his hand on the bench and thinks for a moment.
0: Then Woolsey says, quote, I've been listening as intently as I know how, but I must confess that while listening to you, I've been thinking about that Heppel white chair behind you. Ernst then pauses and smiles, replying, That judge is the essence of Ulysses, and he knows he's won.
2: Ernst's argument is that if the novel expresses human truth or is useful in explaining the human condition, then it isn't legally obscene. If it has literary merit, if it shows excellence, then it should be protected.
0: And that's the decision Wolsey writes. That's the decision that gets printed in the front of every copy of Ulysses that Random House prints for the next 45 years. What he
4: said in the end was that He found Ulysses to really be about um, kind of the sincere effort to show exactly how the minds of characters operate. You know, just to kind of show life in a very honest and unflinching way. Not as we expect to have it shown to us, but as we really feel it.
3: It was a remarkable shift in the way people were understanding Uh, art and the law at the time, and that's one of the major things that Judge Woolsey's decision did. In retrospect, we think of Woolsey changing the definition of obscenity, but what really happened is that Woolsey's decision changed our understanding of what art was.
2: Random House wins, and in three months they sell more copies than Shakespeare and Company had in 11 years. Ulysses goes on to become the novel of the 20th century.
0: It's a bombshell for readers and writers. Virginia Woolf reads Ulysses in 1922. In 1924, she writes Mrs. Dalloway, which takes place on a single day, told in a stream of consciousness style, just like Joyce. And the case itself has provided writers a legal shield against challenges ever since. Perhaps most famously, when the United States versus one book called Ulysses was cited as president in overturning the ban on Allen Ginsberg's Howl in 1957.
2: In the world of literature, there's a shift. There's pre-Ulysses and post-Ulysses. Joyce, with the help of Cerf, Ernst, Woolsey, Sylvia Beach, Anderson and Heap, and maybe a Canadian rum runner or two, not only freed writers from the fear of censorship, he opened up new ways of making art. And for readers, they could see their wild, intimate, chaotic, perverse minds reflected back at them from the page. They saw, possibly for the first time, that they weren't alone, that everyone else had those thoughts too.
4: Its real gift is its absolute embrace of humanity. You get this really kind of kaleidoscopic, overwhelming, dizzying sense of what it is to just kind of be in someone's head. And to just have those words kind of wash over you is I think a magical thing.
0: This week's episode was written and directed by Jeremy Desmond and produced by me, Jeff O'Neill, with production assistance from Blair Anderson and Rita Mead.
2: Sound editing and design by Kyle O'Neill.
0: Be sure to check the show notes for this episode or go to bookriot.com annotated for how to enter Hachette's giveaway of all 12 books sponsoring this season. We'll be back with another new episode in two weeks.
2: If you have a moment to rate and review Annotated on Apple Podcasts, that's the best way to help new people find the show. And you can drop us an email and let us know what you thought about this episode at annotated at bookriot.com.